Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs at the Pratt Library, and I'm pleased to see all of you here this evening. Um, this is a special occasion, one of the a series of events, the uh, Shapiro Lecture Series. Um, this series is sponsored by a bequest from the late Gloria Shapiro, and we are pleased, we are very, very grateful for her um, bequest and pleased that we can continue to explore issues around the Holocaust because of her um, because of her gift. Um, so this evening, um, our special guest is Susan Zuccotti, and to introduce her, we also have another special guest, Michael Fair, who is a historian and a Holocaust scholar. And, um, and a friend of Susan's. And so I think it's quite appropriate that um, because of their connection that Michael um, tell us about Susan and why she's here. Thank you. Good evening once again. With great pleasure that I introduce Dr. Susan Zuccotti a prolific Holocaust scholar. Dr. Zuccotti took her PhD from Columbia University in New York. Her specialty was modern European history. But I think she must have minored in criminal justice. Because to write this book, she traced every clue turned over every clue, and interrogated every witness to present a, a detailed picture of how Holocaust rescue took place. And this is very, very unusual, because Holocaust rescue, by its very nature, was secret, and those who rescued wanted to keep no records that would imperil their own safety. I don't think there's any other rescue book that details how it took place as much as Ducati's new book on Marie Benoit. Hardly surprising that you would write a great new book. Two of her previous books, the French and the Holocaust, and the Italians and the Holocaust, both published by basic books, are standards yet to this day in their field. The one book, The Italians on the Holocaust, and a subsequent book, under his very windows, The Vatican and the Holocaust, both won the Jewish National Prize for Holocaust studies, a remarkable feat. That's just to mention two of the prizes that she has received. While writing a number of books and articles, besides what I've mentioned, Susan found time to raise a family and teach at Columbia University and several other universities. So with that, I'm going to call to the mic Dr. Susan Zuccotti, 
foremost scholar in Holocaust studies today. She will welcome questions after her lecture. Well, thank you all for coming. It's a great pleasure for me to be here. And also, um, I want to begin by thanking Judy Cooper and the others involved with the programming for the library. It's been a pleasure to work with Judy, and um, I am just delighted to be here. I would also like to thank my friend, and I am so proud to say my colleague, Michael Fayer. His works, uh, uh, his, his two really groundbreaking books, one on the Vatican during the Holocaust, but more broadly than mine, mine focused on Italy specifically, and uh, Michael is a German scholar and focused on the Third Reich in particular, and his uh, book about the Vatican and the Cold War were both um, groundbreaking, fascinating, constantly to this day being quoted and, uh, and studied and looked, looked at um, by scholars and uh, students alike. I also must say that when I wrote this book, Michael was kind enough to read it, read the manuscript before publication. And if some of the exploration of rescue is thorough in my book, it's because Michael asked me the questions. Michael, who said, why, what, how did this happen? Have you remembered? Did you ask? Did you explore? All of the questions that a great professor should ask and that Michael was kind, kind enough to ask for me. So I'm going to begin tonight by telling you uh, a little bit about what is essentially for me a biography of Père Marie Benoit. It is two things really. It is in part a biography and it is in part an exploration of this particular priest's rather unique approach to rescue, if you can hear me <laughs> for a moment, um, in the sense that Père Marie Benoit worked with Jew Jewish young men and some women about, of, about his own age in the rescue process, setting up networks, rescue networks, and working together with them. So I explore that unique, not unique, it's, that's too strong a word, but that very special kind of rescue network, along with my uh, biographical data. So I think I can uh, get that, except that uh, that's not supposed to be the first one. <laughs> uh, well. I'll, I'll play with it if you don't mind. Let's switch back and, forth, back and forth. Père Marie Benoit was born in 1895 in a small town in France, and that's why I have the map. The town is Angers. You can see it on the Loire uh, River Valley to the southwest of uh, Paris. And Angers, uh, he did not, was not born in Angers. He was born in a village outside Angers, but he then spent some of his childhood years in Angers itself. This is a, a city, and his was a small town, in the uh, most conservative, traditional, and very Catholic part of France, then and now, and at the time of the French Revolution and long before that. It was extremely traditional, anti, uh, opposed to the French Revolution uh, because of the persecutions that occurred at the time of the French Revolution of the Catholic Church. 
he grew up very close with family and ancestral ties to those who had been persecuted because of their Catholicism. That may sound strange to you uh, for France, but remember that at various times France has been a strongly anti-clerical country, more at certain eras and times than at others. But he grew up at a time when separation of church and state was a prevailing and very strong political current And in fact, he was not able to study to be a Capuchin priest in France, in his own country, because at the very beginning of the 20th century, anti-clerical laws uh, closed uh, the schools that were operated by the congregations, Franciscans, Capuchins, Jesuits. Uh, And so to to train as a priest with a religious order, with a congregation, one had to go to another country. Uh, He went to Belgium, and then from there to Holland. He left home at the age of 11 and never lived with his family again. I mean, it's it's really amazing. Um, But so there you see where he was from. This is the home, this is the house where he was born and where he spent his earliest years. His father was a miller, uh, um, a water, uh, operated a water mill. Uh, this uh, house, quite dilapidated now, but still there, is on a small river and uh, it, had a, it was a mill, a mill site. He had f- three brothers, there were four, four boys in the family. His mother died when he was young. Uh, well, not that young. His mother died during the First World War. He was away uh, at, uh, serving uh, as a soldier at the time that his mother died. Um, and I will get to his war years in a moment. But this is a, a picture obviously taken after the First World War. But um, you see him with his father and his three brothers. It's rather poignant to look at this picture and to understand that the picture on the far right that man was not here at the time this picture was taken in 1938. That young man was actually killed in the First World War. And he too was studying to be a priest at the time of the war. Pierre-Marie Benoit wrote a lot and I've read a lot of his uh, letters and diaries and notes and reminiscences, uh, not exactly a formal memoir, but he testified a lot after the Second World War in writing. And so he wrote a lot about what he did and uh, during the war and after the war, the Second World War. But he wrote very little about his personal life. So we don't know what kind of a trauma his mother's death had on him. We don't know what kind of a trauma his brother's death had upon him. His One of his letters to his religious superior written during the First World War when he was in ser- military service said, I have heard that my brother uh, was shot and last seen lying in a trench. And that's all he said about it. So we don't know. He was a very private person in that way. This is a picture of him in the First World War. He had finished his uh, high school years and begun seminary studies in Holland to become a Capuchin priest. But he returned to France during the, um, at the very beginning of the very beginning of the war. Uh, He would have been drafted, uh, but he returned before he was drafted uh, and volunteered. He would have been drafted, and then of course he could have stayed in neutral Holland. 
but then he would not have been able to return to France. He would have been a draft dodger in, in a sense, and unless there was an amnesty, he would not have um, been able to return to his to his country. But in fact, he um, he wanted to serve, and he served for well, whatever four and four plus years at the front. And not only did he serve as a soldier, but he uh, served in the front lines. He was at Verdun. He was wounded in Verdun. I tell all of this in my book uh, based very much on the letters that he wrote to his superiors. This must have been an extremely formative time for him because he, until this point, had never lived with the outside world. I mean, we forget how sheltered a young man at that time was who would be have studied in a uh, Catholic boys high school in a foreign country away from his family and then gone into a seminary. He knew he had no sisters. His mother had died. He or died about this time, but he was very sheltered from the, his friends were Catholic, his society, his town, his village, um, his contacts. In the First World War, he was thrown full speed ahead into the rest of the world. This is a photograph of Pius XI. After the First World War, Pius the uh, after the First World War, the young man who was to become Père Marie Benoit, his secular name was Pierre Petol, uh, was brilliant in his studies and was selected from his seminary in Holland to go to Rome and study at the premier Capuchin uh, formative uh, seminary and central headquarters of the Capuchin order. This was a great honor. He, he was a brilliant student. He studied at the uh, Universita Gregoriana, uh, the premier um, pontifical uh, Catholic uh, university in Rome. And when he got to um, Rome in 1922, this man, Achille was had just been called to the papacy uh, this man's um, papacy dates go from 1922 to 1939. Uh, we have a note from uh, Père-Marie Benoit saying on the day that uh, Pius XI was uh, selected, the white smoke came out of the window at Vatican City. There was a new pope, and he was a young man in Rome he didn't say much, but all of his enthusiasm and eagerness for life and commitment to his vocation came out in the one sentence that he wrote in his diary, Abemos Pontificatus. He was very excited. He said, I went to the Vatican City to see the, um, the ceremony. He lived, Père-Marie Benoit, uh, he, be, he was ordained in, and became truly Père-Marie Benoit. I've been using the name loosely. He was ordained in 1923. And then he spent the interwar years uh, between the First and Second World War in Rome teaching, very beloved by his students. And he was a true scholar and wrote um, a great deal of theology, philosophy, and that is indeed what he taught. Um, we are now approaching and we're going through the 1930s as well, and the Second World War is looming. This is a photograph of among many, or maybe this is, I guess this is a painting actually, of Pius XII. 
Pius XI died, in, as I said, in February 1939. Pius XII was selected and uh, be became pope in March of 1939. This is the pope who will be pope throughout the years of the Second World War and the uh, Holocaust. So Benedict, uh, uh, Pius the, uh, sorry, Père Marie Benoit was very, um, very much in, in aware of Pius XII as, as well. He met him only once in a private uh, audience, and I think that we, my, in my story I will, now I will come to that. Now the war breaks out. In September 1939, as you know, the Germans invaded uh, France. Oh, no, sorry. In September of 1939, the Germans invaded Poland, the war began, and then in May of 1940, the Germans invaded France. The French army capitulated quite soon, and at the time of the uh, French armistice with the Germans, France was divided into an occupied and an unoccupied zone, or if you will from the map, occupied zone and a free zone. Père Marie Benoit was in Rome uh, teaching in uh, May of 1940 as France was being overrun, and he was called back to France. He couldn't stay in Italy where he was happily living and speaking Italian and teaching at, in Rome. He couldn't stay because he was a French citizen. So he had to leave the country, and he returned to France and lived in the was was sent to a Capuchin monastery in the city of Marseille. Uh, I think that's reasonably clear to you where where Marseille is along the along the Mediterranean coast. So he um, let's see this picture is a little bit confusing, but the entire gray zone was the uh, was the free zone uh, for a time. When he was in Marseille, uh, in the free zone, he began to, as far as we know, for the first time, become involved with Jewish fugitives uh, in need of help. The first fugitives who came to him came to his monastery. Uh, and knocked on the door and asked for help. They were not necessarily being deported yet. This would be 1940 and 1941. Uh, many of them, most of them, in fact, were foreign Jews. Uh, the French government, Vichy regime, was always tougher on the foreign Jews than on the French Jews, and in particular in the earlier years. And uh, But foreign Jews in France desperately needed help um, getting false papers in particular and they wanted to get out of France to Switzerland or to Spain. Père Marie Benoit was an obvious uh, choice for them to come to because he had been making, um, not a lot, but two or three or four speeches um, at a convent in Marseille of the Sisters of Notre Dame de Zion, who were also very involved in, uh, in Jewish Catholic, with Jewish Catholic relations. And... Um, he was making those talks at the convent to the public about the need to have compassion and concern for victims of war, but in particular um, Jewish uh, victims of war and the uh, evils of anti-Semitism. So he was known. <clears throat> he had a reputation, quiet, but a slight reputation, for being sympathetic to Jewish um, issues and causes and to Jews in need. They knocked on his door, and, at and he became gradually involved in rescue. It took him 
a while. I mean, he didn't say no. I met him, actually, and I asked him. Um, I met him once at the very, very near the end of his life, and I asked him how he'd become involved in rescue and why he did it. And he said, well, I was a refugee myself. I was in Marseille. I didn't have anything particular to do in this convent, in this monastery. Uh, I had time on my hands. I had no real responsibilities. I had been sent there from Rome. Um, and they needed me. And that's how he began. But it is very apparent that he was a very special person. It wasn't so dangerous in the beginning. It became more dangerous every month and every year. And then in um, November of 1942, uh, there is no longer this division of France. The Germans in November of 1942 occupied all of the country, with the exception of the area that you see, which has the, which has the slanted lines. And that area was occupied by the Italian army fighting on the side of the Germans. So let's see, now where was I? He, he became gradually more and more involved, more and more people knock on his door. He's more and more aware of the need to help them, but he's not quite sure how to go about it. And he, can, he can make false papers. That was not so hard. He, he knew people in Marseille, and the way they did it was that he would call upon a Catholic parishioner who he knew worked in the local Marseille office of um, registration for foreigners. Can you give me some blank papers? Well, yeah, we'll give you some blank papers. And then he'd um, get a photographer, and they'd take a picture, and they'd attach the picture to the false. To the, uh, so they weren't false papers. They were real. They were what the French called real false papers, <laughs> as opposed to false false papers. False false papers were papers that you made and printed in the basement without any help from any municipal official, and then you put the picture on. They were not quite as good as the real false papers. So he did that for a while, but he, these, these, um, these refugees needed more than just false papers. They really needed either to get out of the country, or if they were going to stay there, they needed to be hidden. So he needed to find places for them to hide. Now, a Catholic priest can also do that, reasonably well. When you think about rescue, it, 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 you think about it and you realize that there are some things that the Catholics uh, could do if they were aware of it uh, and aware of the need and if they were so inclined. And there were some things that Jews could do to help their own community and better than maybe the Catholics. What the Jews could do was, and French Jews particularly who were secure in their citizenship, uh, or at least, at the very least, knew their way around illegally, uh, what to do and how to live as a fugitive, by which I mean generally unattached uh, Jewish men who didn't have families, who didn't have too many familial responsibilities. Um, they could refer people. The Jews would, more than going to a priest, the Jews would come to a Jewish uh, rescuer in the city who had a reputation for being helpful that man could put them in touch with Père Marie Benoit. But that man also knew his way around the city in ways that Père Marie Benoit maybe didn't. He could find um, people who could escort fugitives to a hiding place, but Père Marie Benoit could find the hiding place because he could call upon, say, for example, a priest in the mountains up uh, north of Marseille, a priest he happened to know who was a good guy, and he would send a note by a messenger who might be 
a Jewish uh, uh, rescuer. And very often in this case, I said the men, the men were the organizers. The couriers, if you will, were very often young girls. Uh, not young girls, young women. Um, remember that um, a lot of French Jews had lost their jobs because of the French anti-Jewish laws. They had time. Uh, they, uh, women had been teachers, maybe, or social workers uh, committed to helping other people. Um, but they could move around the streets of Marseille uh, a little more easily than Jewish men because the Jewish men, if caught, would immediately be detected as Jews because of the circ their circumcision. So, uh, also, it was dangerous for men to be on the street because you'd be stopped. Why aren't you in the French? Why aren't you in the army? Or why aren't more more likely at the earlier stages? Why aren't you in the labor service? Or what are you doing running <laughs> running around? You men, women were not such a threat. So a lot of the couriers were women, and I tell the stories in my book. Um, of some of these women, uh, one in particular I knew very well, and I have quite a long excerpt in my book, uh, that she wrote after the war about her first adventure going out into the countryside to try to locate a priest that Père Marie Benoit had um, uh, recommended to her. So I'm perhaps wandering a bit in my description. I hope you're following, and I hope I'm not wandering too much. But so gradually, Père Marie Benoit set up a kind of cooperative network with Jewish friends, uh, Jewish men. I mean, and uh, this is the probably the most active of the men in Marseille. This is a picture of Père Marie Benoit with Joseph Bass. Joseph Bass is in. I haven't been. Um, I haven't been studying my time constraints so, so well, but so I hope I don't run out of time. He, Joseph Bass was a Jewish, uh, Russian Jewish immigrant to France, a brilliant man who had gotten a double uh, degree at the Sorbonne with absolutely no family uh, to support him, to to help him, no. No financial. He worked in. He worked at Les Halles in the marketplace. Uh, no, no French when he came to um, to France from Russia, um, and I've forgotten. But he came, I think, around 1930, maybe. Um, it's in my book, and I tell the story. But he was a maverick. He was a wise guy, if you will. He was full of imagination and creativity and ideas. He was a very strong character. He and, and Père Marie Benoit was all of those things as well. They were both very, very bright. They got along fam famously. Uh, some of their letters and exchanges are, are still existent, and uh, I've learned about Joseph Bass from those letters. But he, Joseph Bass, has had almost no recognition as, as a rescuer. You know that there's been a lot of attention given to non-Jews who were rescuers, they're honored at Yad Vashem, the righteous among the nations. Um, Jewish rescuers really uh, gave uh, of their lives in a way that is beyond, um, because, of course, if they were caught, they had no chance at all. So together, these two men set up a rescue network. Um, uh, this is a Catholic woman. That is not a yellow star on her lapel. It's a pin of some sort. Uh, Fernand Le Boucher was a, a French woman married to a Jewish man who was arrested, a foreign Jewish uh, man who was arrested early on because he was um, a foreigner. 
And she became involved in rescue because uh, of her husband. And I tell her story and her husband's story. Um, but she became very involved with uh, Père Marie Benoit in terms of uh, acting as a courier, a guide, an escort, and also hiding Jews in Marseille in her own rather fashionable apartment. She later came to the United States and lived in the United States for, uh, for the last years of her life. And this is Angelo Donati. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to skip over some of this story, but Angelo Donati was an older man, older than uh, Père Marie Benoit. They were not buddies in the same way that Joseph Bass and Père Marie were buddies. Uh, Angelo Donati was a man of more, um, more established uh, stature. He was an Italian Jewish businessman. And he did a great deal to help Jews, both with Père Marie Benoit and, uh, and André Bass, uh, Joseph Bass, and also on his own, working with the Italian occupying authorities. It's a long an other story uh, and a fascinating one. Now, this is another picture, the same picture of uh, Pius XII to remind you that now we're getting back to Italy. Père Marie Benoit did the kinds of rescue work that I have described to you in Marseille, learning with Joseph Bass how to go about it. Uh, he learned how to set up networks, how to distribute false papers, how to find hiding places, how to get food out. And remember, Jews in hiding had to have money. They had to, for the most part, they had to pay some sort of room and board, whether they were in a monastery, a convent, a school, a hospital. Um, they had to buy food. They had to have ration books. Uh, they needed support. And that's what Père Marie Benoit learned how to do in France. But now, in July of 1943, he was called back to Rome. He was called by his Capuchin order to come back to the school where he had been uh, before. I don't know why he was no longer considered a threat to the, uh, as he had been in June of 1940, but by July of 1943, he was able to return to uh, Rome. He didn't want to go. He, and he wrote, and we have his letters saying, I'm doing so much here in Marseille, uh, I, I uh, really would rather stay here. But remember, in July of 1943, Roma, uh, Italy was still fighting in the Second World War on the side of the Germans. And uh, Jews in Italy were not yet being deported because Italy was an ally of the Germans rather than an opponent of the Germans. This is, this is German legalese, uh, the complicated way that the Holocaust played itself out. Uh, but so Pamarie Benoit went back to Rome in uh, July of 1943. In September of 1943, September 8th, and we have just passed the 70th anniversary of this event, uh, we, the, the Italian uh, regime, which now did not have Mussolini, Mussolini had been deposed, uh, but the, uh, the, the Italian regime that replaced Mussolini, headed by Maréchal Badoglio, signed an armistice with the Allies. Now Italy is no longer a partner of Germany. Italy is, and soon after became, um, uh, declared war on the Germans. And the Germans occupied Italy completely, except for the toehold where the Allied armies were struggling up the peninsula. 
So now we have Père Marie Benoit in Rome, September, October 1943. The same thing is happening in Rome that he experienced when he was in Marseille. But now he is ready, he has learned, and he knows what to do. Uh, the Great Roundup, and sometimes it's a little bit off of our story, but the Great Roundup in Rome, I would point out to you because it occurred on October 16th, 1943, and the 70th anniversary is, uh, is coming up. It will be honored and commemorated in Italy and hopefully in various uh, centers throughout the United States. Um, some 1,200 Jews were arrested in Rome and deported. Only 17 survived. And Père Marie Benoit was there and uh, gradually setting up his rescue network. This is a picture of the Hotel Salus. This is the kind of place where Père Marie Benoit hid Jewish fugitives coming into Rome and needing a place to go. You had to find cooperative, uh, willing to help hotels, pension. This was really called a pension. It's still there, this picture I took. Um, but Jews were, he hid Jews there until he could find a safer place for them to go. Ideally, they needed to get out of public places like hotels and get into convents, monasteries, schools, hospitals, and private apartments. He set up a rescue operation, and this is uh, Père Marie Benoit at the end of his life. Those are Legion of Hon Légion d'Honneur. It's the Croix de Guerre. He was decorated after the war. He was very proud of his medals, very, very proud. He was not a braggart, but he wore his medals. This is actually the day he was um, promoted uh, in, within the Légion d'Honneur to a higher level. Uh, so he would have naturally worn them. I, I'm sure he didn't wear them every day around his monastery. But he was very proud of them. And this was his great friend, Stefan Schwan. So I showed you Joseph Bass, and I told you not much is known about him. This is Stefan Schwan. He filled the same role in Rome, and very, very little is known about him. He was a charming man, as you can see from his picture, debonair, uh, gallant, uh, creative, also a lawyer, brilliant, imaginative, daring. And there is in this, and um, Michael and I have talked about this, there was in this rescue operation, and it sounds irreverent perhaps to say, but there was a certain kind, a certain dimension of adventurism too. I mean, these guys were heroes, but they were bucking the authorities, they were saving lives, they were doing what they knew was important. But it was not fun, I would never be so irreverent as to say it was fun, but it was an adventure and you get a sense of that. And I think for Père Marie Benoit particularly because he was such a scholar, a contemplative, it's, it's hard to believe that he was really two personalities in one. He loved this kind of guy, I mean he just enjoyed their company. And, uh, and Joseph Bass as well. And he, um, he, it gave him a different kind of life, took him out of the tedium, perhaps, of a monastery and into a, a wild and crazy adventure. Um, well, this takes us now to a post-war period. So we go with um, Stefan Schwamm. Uh, he was from Vienna. Uh, uh, 
spoke several languages and uh, actually was arrested and caught and deported to Auschwitz, but survived, uh, came back after the war, and I tell his story and the dramatic story of the arrest because Père Marie Benoit was with him uh, when he was arrested. They almost were both arrested. And I tell that story as well. But then, so they saved some 2,000 at least Jews in Rome, hiding them on an individual basis or or with family units in pension, like the Hotel Salas that I showed you, or in convents, which Père Marie Benoit could locate, you know, because he knew where the convents were. Uh, Stefan Schwamm brought in the clients, the protégés, the refugees, and uh, Père Marie Benoit contacted heads of monasteries and convents to ask if the uh, Jewish uh, refugees could hide there. They were a great team. The war ended, and uh, after the war, this is a picture of Père Marie Benoit. I'm getting to the end of my story now, I think. I'm about on schedule, and I'm welcoming your questions. Uh, After the war, he lived in Rome for a time. Uh, He continued to be extremely involved after the war in promoting Jewish-Catholic reconciliation and friendship. He began that activity immediately after the liberation of Rome in June of 1944, even before the war in the north of Italy was over. Uh, He uh, initiated a lecture series on the Old Testament and encouraged Jews and Catholics alike to come to the lectures. Uh, And they had great discussions. Uh, There are records of those lectures and meetings. Um, But this was not a popular um, procedure at the Vatican. Uh, Jewish Catholic, it's hard for us to understand today and to remember that Two things were true, many things, but uh, Jewish-Catholic friendship was strongly frowned upon at the Vatican because of fear that somehow the Catholics would be deterred from their commitment, religious commitments, I guess, Uh, but it was very much disapproved um, to have these kinds of friendships after the war, and he tried to change that. He also a study of the Old Testament by Jews and Catholics, or Jews and Christians for that matter, all Protestants, uh, working together was also very much frowned upon. Um, The Old Testament was seen by Vatican as to be interpreted in a particular way, always, of course, leading to uh, Jesus and the New Testament, and Jews saw it, Um, as a religious document in a different way, Uh, but that was in Père Marie Benoit's mind, no reason why they couldn't study the Old Testament together, and that would be a way of promoting friendship and sharing of cultural and religious heritage, but the Vatican did not see it that way. He fell into certain disfavor and actually in 1953 was sent to a, out of Rome to a small seminary in the south of Italy where he spent two years. And then from there he went to a not quite so small but not a major um, seminary back in France. So this is a picture of him actually as he was in that kind of transit. Um, He was honored by the Jewish community of Rome 
and given a, a uh, trip to Israel in 1958, which he's written about a great deal, and I write a lot about that um, in my book. It was a trip for him that, given the poverty of his of his religious vows, he never would have been able to um, manage. Uh, he was able to get permission to go from his superiors, and he had a wonderful time. And he spent the rest of his life working for Jewish-Catholic reconciliation. Vatican changed. He didn't. The Vatican caught up with him. He was a man before his time. And as you uh, undoubtedly know, much of what I just described to you about uh, Jewish-Catholic friendship and uh, Old Testament and many other uh, views changed at the time of Vatican II, particularly during the papacy of John Twenty-Third. So that by the end of his life, this kind of friendship was much more common, uh, and he continued to dedicate his life to that kind of reconciliation. And this is my last photograph. This is a picture taken, I think it was 1976, showing him in a demonstration for Soviet Jewry. Uh, and he is walking with uh, Baron uh, Alain Rochald on the far left, uh, Chief Rabbi uh, Jacob Kaplan in the middle, Kaplan, and uh, I can't quite remember who that other fellow with the top hat is. Uh, so this is just to show you uh, uh, again that this uh, is um, the way he lived out his later years. So he was an exceptional man. I am very proud and pleased to be able to introduce you to this great man and to the great men with him, Stefan Schwamm, Joseph Bass, and others whom, uh, Angelo Donati, and others whom I uh, describe in my book. I hope you will come to appreciate them uh, and read about them and uh, respect them as much as I do. And thank you very much. Yes. You said when he was in the army, he wrote lots of letters, which apparently were read to his superiors in the army, if I understood you. Yes. Why would he have done that in the church? Uh, he was. Oh, no, maybe. No, no, no. Maybe I misspoke. His superiors in the church. Okay. Yeah. He was a seminary student, and he was expected to report what he was doing, that he was behaving himself, how he was spending his money. You know, they paid him virtually nothing uh, as in the French army um, for risking their lives and dying, but he was supposed to turn all his money back to the... Uh, yes, sir. The, the last slide, the demonstration for Russian jewelry. Where was that taken and, and when? Uh, I, I believe it was 1976, and I believe it was in Paris, but I don't know any more specifically than that. Yes. Uh, when did you meet him and how did you come to him? Um, I met him, my first book was about Italy and I wrote, it was published in 1987. That's how old I am. And, uh, and I was working on a similar book about France. I had written, the questions I asked from those two books were, how did the people of France and how did the people of Italy respond to the persecutions, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. So I, I wrote those two books. At some point, I think um, before the French book came out, but after the Italian book, I, I had the courage to write. To, I just wrote to him and said, may I come and see you? 
And, and he, he said yes. Uh, and uh, it was a difficult interview because he was qu quite old by this time. He was born in 1895, and I think he, he, he died, maybe I didn't say that, in 1990. Um, no, 19, yes, 19, no, he was born in 1890, 1895, and he died in 1990. I think I saw him around eight, around 19, 90, 91, so not long. No, wait, wait, he died in 1990. <laughs> I guess I must have seen him about 1988. And uh, I just went to his monastery. And as I was coming out, Stefan Schwann was coming in. But I didn't know the story well enough yet to know who Stefan Schwamm was. And later I realized who this very charming man was. He said, call me anytime. He gave me his card. And of course, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know who he was. And only later did I discover who he was. And, but I know Stefan Schwamm's son. And through him, uh, equally, uh, equally lively, bright, and gallant, uh, I have had access to his father's papers. Uh, I'm working in the, yes. The, so I have a two-part two question. First question is, uh, he was a philosopher, your protagonist. How did he come about to find anti-Semitism to be disgusting? I assuming he did. Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't really talk about the philosophical aspects of that. Mm -hmm. And the second part of the question is the following. Do you find there's a so that it deflects from the larger issue of Christian collaboration with fascism. Yes. Um, all right, so the, the, the first question, how did he come to, um, can, your second question threw me off. So what's, uh, what, how did he come to uh, find anti-Semitism reprehensible and uh, as a philosophically and in an abstract sense before, he became a rescuer. Um, we don't really know. That was a question that um, Doc, Professor Michael Fayer wanted me to answer, and we uh, hashed it over a bit. But we don't really know. Uh, was it because uh, he had lived as a Catholic in a area where he, where Catholics were, uh, had been persecuted, that he was sympathetic to a, the underdog? But you know, there were plenty of Catholics who were persecuted who acted in exactly the opposite way. Uh, and when Vichy came in, we're very happy to have an ultra-traditionalist conservative regime. Uh, so uh, it's hard to, to know too much about that. Sometimes I speculate that he may have met Jews in the army uh, and that this would have been his first acquaintance. He certainly liked the Jewish people. Uh, but we're uh, talking about his... I mean, that's clear from everything he did and everything he wrote. But we're talking about an earlier period when he hadn't had a chance to meet very many Jews. So perhaps something happened in the army. We don't know. We do know that in 1928, he joined an organization called Amicizia, it's an Italian word, Amicizia Israele, which was an organization of Catholic uh, priests and clergy, um, a lot from Italy and France, but a little bit from other countries, dedicated to improving Jewish-Catholic relations, which was, uh, two years later, uh, dissolved by the Vatican. Um, but he had joined it. We don't know why. And then after, he, never, he never really said, and he never wrote much about it. 
So we, we uh, uh, some have speculated, Fernand Leboucher, whose picture you saw, speculated that when he was a student at the Gregorian University in Rome, he had to study Hebrew, we know that, and he got good grades in Hebrew as he got in everything. Uh, and that perhaps he met Jews, or perhaps he went down, wandered down to what had been the old ghetto, the, the uh, ghetto area, no longer a ghetto at that time, but a lot of, um, uh, not businessmen Jews, but poorer, poorer Jewish community. And he may have gone there and met people, but we really don't know. Um, your other question is, yes, I, I think, and maybe I'm not going to answer it in every dimension of what you meant, so perhaps if you want to rephrase, but um, I think the focus on rescuers does a, a number of things. It, dis, it detracts from the fact that rescuers were a very small number of people, percentage-wise, it detracts from the fact that in many countries, uh, Jewish survivors were a very small percentage of the overall Jewish community. Um, in France, the survival rates were much higher, and in Italy, even higher. But certainly that was not true in Eastern and Central uh, Europe. And so we cannot and don't want to ever get away from that uh, reality. So I think to uh, write uh, and study rescuers helps us, d doesn't necessarily help us to understand the Holocaust better. It doesn't help us to understand the persecution, um, uh, the reasons for the persecution, the reasons for government measures and activities, or the way that local populations accepted those. Uh, uh, but it does tell us something about human uh, potential and possibility and the uh, courage it took to do this kind of thing, this kind of rescue work, um, uh, the way that individuals could indeed make a difference if they were so inclined. And uh, so it's, it's, yes, it's a, it's a slippery slope or a narrow path or, mm -hmm. yes. In your research, do you have anything Pope Pius XII and his lack of help, or did he go to him for any kind of help that you're aware of? Yes, I um, uh, have written, this is my fifth book, and this is the only one that's truly focused on a rescuer, uh, because I met Père Marie Benoit in my, all my other books. Uh, so um, my uh, after the French and the Italian studies that I did, I wrote a book about the Vatican and the Holocaust in Italy. Professor Fayer wrote about the Vatican and the Holocaust in a broader way, and in particular in connection with the Third Reich, and mine was about the Vatican in Italy. Um, and that was Pius XII, so essentially I was writing about Pius XII. And uh, I focused just on Italy because I thought that, um, uh, well, Italy was my expertise, Italian was my language, not Michael's language is German. Uh, mine was Italy, that's where I could do Italian, that's where I could do my research best. And I also thought that Pius XII, if he was going to be helpful, and the Vatican uh, hierarchy in general, if they were going to be helpful, were most likely to be helpful in Italy because that's where their friends and colleagues and classmates, their family, their contacts were. So if Pius XII did not do 
what we might have wished, or as much as we might have wished in Italy, he probably wasn't going to do it anywhere. Oh, that's a simplification, because of course dealing with the Nazis was a whole other cup of tea and a, and a whole other uh, you know, can of worms, if you will. But yes, I did write about Pius XII, and basically uh, that's my longest and most difficult book. Uh, I do speak about that. Uh, too. It's a hard uh, thing to talk about because it's a very complicated um, subject, but in fact, we, my, my conclusion is, was that we know what Pius XII said publicly about the Holocaust. That's an easy one. We know what he said, and he didn't say much, and that can't be argued. Uh, and then we can look at what else he might have done to help Jews, help Jews behind the scenes, uh, or encourage rescue, and um, my conclusion was that there's not very much evidence that he was involved in encouraging rescue. Père Marie Benoit, uh, what has happened uh, even during Père Marie Benoit's lifetime, but even more so recently with the uh, canonization efforts to the efforts to canonize Pius XII? What has happened is that defenders of Pius XII are um, trying to claim that he was responsible for the rescue of Jews everywhere in occupied Europe. And in fact, uh, during Père Marie Benoit's lifetime, there were article, there were once or twice, not a lot, uh, there were claims made by Vatican uh, officials or defenders that he had been their agent. He had worked, and I discuss this in the book, that he had worked in re at rescue because of the Vatican. And this provoked him. He never had confrontations with the Vatican. He never was critical. He didn't say anything uh, impolite or uh, outrageous or anywhere in between. But when that, those claims, on the couple of occasions that that claim were made, he said, I got nothing from the Vatican. He said, I got nothing from the Vatican. He didn't say the Pope discouraged him. He didn't say anyone discouraged him. He just said, I got nothing from the Vatican. And then he left it at that. You know, he didn't want a fight or an argument. But yes. Was he ever afforded any credit for the state of Israel? I'm sorry, I, I didn't hear the whole thing. Was he ever afforded any credit for all of his efforts to rescue the state of Israel? As far as I know, there's no street named after him, uh, which there. There's a lot of trees. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Thanks. <laughs> Yes, I was thinking of monuments and medals and, and streets uh, named. Yes, he was one among the earliest to be um, designated a righteous among the nations at Yad Vashem. And uh, there is a tree planted in his honor there. Yes. I just want to say this is a very beautiful undertaking and a very beautiful story. I appreciate everything you said. Thank you. It's very kind of you. Thank you. I think on that, that's a wonderful place to end, Susan. And I, we thank you so much. We have copies of Susan's book outside um, for sale. And you can read much, much more. There's much more in the book than, um, than we were able to talk about in an hour or so. And, and she will be outside signing copies of your book and, and there to chat with you further. So. Thank you so much for coming to Baltimore. Thank you all for coming tonight. <laughs>